You're listening to Now Showing, a study of the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 1, verse 1. The revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John, who testifies to everything he saw. That is, the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. Revelation. Revelation is an intimidating book to study. (laughs) You know, in, in Revelation, we have got some crazy stuff in here. I mean, there are beasts, there are trumpets, there are bowls, there's creatures with wings, there's lampstands, there's the number 666, there's locusts, there's four horsemen. And after a while of looking at all that stuff, it just kind of becomes easier to avoid it rather than trying to, to figure all it out. It's so intimidating. And when we look at Revelation, we also see that there's death and there's famine and there's plagues and destruction and it can, Revelation can be scary as well. Someone was reading Revelation, and as they were reading it, they, they said, this is a scary book. This isn't a very happy book to read. And when you compare it to the Lord is my shepherd, no, it's not a happy book to read. You know, it's an intimidating. It can be a, it can be a scary book to read. But the point I want to impress upon us as we study this book of Revelation over the next few weeks is simply this. God didn't give John this vision, this this revelation for us to be intimidated or scared or or for us to even chart out the end times. Instead, I, I believe that revelation was given to us to be a guidebook for discipleship. That from this book, we can learn how to remain faithful to God while living in a hostile culture. From this book of Revelation, it's an instruction manual on how to have peace in a world that's falling to pieces. We desperately need the message of Revelation today. And we need to teach on Revelation because we need to reclaim the message of this book. We need to reclaim the message that this book is not about when and where, it's about who. That the book of Revelation answers the question, how should followers of Jesus Christ live in difficult times? The main message of Revelation is to encourage the church, to encourage disciples of Jesus to remain faithful to the very end. Now, Revelation was a letter originally written to seven churches in the Roman province of of Asia. And the Christians who received this letter, they were living in constant danger. Domitian, the Roman emperor, he was waging war against the church. He was persecuting them, even even executing people who, who claimed to follow Jesus Christ. And so this book of Revelation, it's not just a warning for those who live in the last days to to figure out when it's going to happen, when the second coming will occur, but it's to serve as a warning and encouragement for disciples in every generation. And we must endure. And we've got to be faithful. And don't get caught off guard when times are tough. But Revelation chapter 2 verse 10 says, Be faithful even to the point of death. And that's a key message that weaves its way throughout the entire book. 
Now, there are a couple extremes that take place when it comes to the book of Revelation. Uh, You can neglect it or you can obsess over it. And some will become obsessed with Revelation and they'll spend every moment they can studying, trying to figure out, trying to chart out exactly how everything is going to take place. And, And in fact, they get so focused on the future that they become no good in the present, that they don't even focus on what's happening now. And what's amazing to me is how devoted people can be in their obsession to to figuring out the book of Revelation and figuring out when will Jesus return. Now they know that Jesus himself said, I'm going to come back when no one expects me. (laughs) They know that Jesus himself even said, I don't know when I'm coming back. They know Jesus said, hey, it's not for us to inquire about these days and times, and yet they still want to obsess over it and want to figure out to give a two-minute warning before Jesus comes back. But on the other hand, there are some who don't obsess over it, but they neglect it. That, that well, we, we can't figure it out and we can't understand it, and so let, let's just avoid it is kind of the mentality that this, this group brings. And i got to confess that for, for a while, I've been part of that neglect group. I kind of had a bad experience in a previous ministry where I had a group of people who was like, we want you to teach on the second coming. Teach on the second coming of Jesus. And, and I'd put them off and put them off. And, and finally, I just said, okay, I'll, I'll share and teach on the, the second coming of Jesus. Well, they didn't like what I had to say. They didn't agree with my opinions on the second coming of Jesus. And it kind of started a division in the church, started problems in the church. And so ever since then, I've always been hesitant to, to talk about Revelation or talk about the, the second coming because I don't want people fighting over it. But I've come to the realization it would be a tragedy to never study this book of Revelation. It would be a, a, just a horrible circumstance to, to ignore an entire book of God's word. Because instead of being scared or obsessed by Revelation, we need to be transformed by Revelation. Now, as we go into the study, it's good to have some some ground rules. We want the church to be united. (laughs) You know, yes, there's room for different opinions. Yes, there's room for different preferences. But we want to be united in serving Jesus together. And let me lay down another ground rule here at the beginning. I heard about a preacher in Ohio who was preaching on Revelation. Member of the church, didn't like what he had to say. Went home, got a shotgun, and shot him. So, here's the deal. Email, text messages, conversations, feel free to disagree. Do not shoot me. That's the rule. And we'll get along just fine. But let's zero in on how we're going to approach the study of Revelation over the next few weeks in this sermon series. Let me go over maybe some things to expect or not expect, uh, whatever the case may be. Don't expect to receive a guaranteed, valid interpretation of every figure, every picture in this book of Revelation. I don't believe personally that God's going to give us every detail about the future to the point it takes away our our free will. It takes away our choice. I believe God reveals what we need to know about the future. He reveals that he he gives us assurance. He's in control. He, He reassures us that, yes, he has the ultimate victory. That's what we need to know about the future. And so don't expect in this sermon series to to hear every possible interpretation about how things are going to go. Uh, We're going to be focusing on the big picture of Revelation. 
I think at times you can get so caught up in the details that you lose the emphasis, you lose the point of the book. And so we're going to be more focused on the big picture in the book of, of Revelation. And I hope that you'll come here expecting practical application each Sunday. As we discover principles in this book of Revelation, uh, we discover that God's word is powerful. I mean, it is life changing. It is relevant to our lives today. I mean, if it wasn't, it wouldn't be God's word. Because unless the Bible can speak to every generation and every time and place, then, then it's irrelevant. But I want us to study the book of Revelation because it's in the Bible. And we need to know the whole counsel of God. We need to seek his wisdom. And I also want to study Revelation because the book has a promise of blessing. Revelation chapter 1 verse 3 says, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. And I don't know about you guys, but I want God's blessing in my life. And this is the only book in the New Testament that has this blessing, this promise. That's a good reason to study it, to have God's blessing in our life. But another reason I want us to study Revelation is because it will deepen us. It will push us. It will make us better disciples of Jesus Christ. And we're going to have to learn and rely on some, uh, some principles of interpreting the Bible. And, and they're going to help us to come to the message that God intended for his church to hear. But it's going to push us. It's going to take us deeper. Because we know John was writing to a specific audience. And while Revelation had some very important things to say to those seven churches that John was writing to, I believe Revelation has important things to say to us today in the church as well. And we need to study this message from God to the church and and learn what his message for us is today from the book of Revelation. And so as we go deeper in our study, please remember a few keys to understanding the book of Revelation. When John writes Revelation, he is going to rely heavily on imagery, especially Old Testament images. Revelation alludes to the Old Testament more than any other book in the New Testament. And so having a, a grasp or a basic understanding of the Old Testament is key in better understanding the picture that John is trying to paint in the book of Revelation because he's going to use these images, especially from the Old Testament. Now, whenever you use images in in writing and things, it it gets tricky because at times you can take literal what was meant figurative or take figurative what was meant to be literal. For example, when Jesus was teaching his disciples in John chapter 10, Jesus told his disciples, I am the gate. Jesus did not mean he was literally on a fence post with hinges saying, I'm the gate. Now, Jesus was figuratively using that image to say, hey, I'm the way that you get to God. It's through, through me. I am the gate. It, it, it's figurative language with a, with a literal meaning. And so in Revelation, in the book of Revelation, we will see John use several images to share his vision. He'll use objects. In Revelation 1.16, John writes about the man he saw. He saw in his right hand he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp double-edged sword. Well, in the ancient world, anyone who had a sword had power, had authority, had strength. 
And so the, the sword here is, is an object of, of strength and power. So when John writes about a double-edged sword coming out of his mouth, uh, 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 coming out of the mouth of the one he sees, John is saying, These, this person, his words have power. His words have authority. It wasn't that there was literally a sword coming out of his mouth, but the, that this person, their words mean something. And we can ask ourselves today, who are we listening to? Whose words have authority in our life? Whose words carry weight in the way that we live? And John says, I saw this man, this Jesus, with like a sword coming out. His words mean something. Jesus can back up anything he says. He has power. He has authority. That is real power. So John will use objects. John will also use numbers. In chapter 1, we'll see the number 7 used 11 times. And 7 is the number that represents God. It represents perfection. The number 12 in the book of Revelation will represent the people of God. And there's a critical rule that we have to follow when looking at numbers in Revelation. And the critical rule is this. Instead of counting numbers, we will weigh numbers. And what I mean by that is instead of getting caught up in the counting we're going to weigh the significance of what those numbers mean, of what those numbers represent. For instance, if, if God is 777, then the person, the beast that is 666, well, they're not quite God. But we'll, we'll talk about that more a little bit later on. Of course, it's always funny. Last night I was checking out at the JC store. Uh, the girl at the cash register, she handed me my receipt. You know how they always tell you how much you save with your JC card? She looked at, she hands me a seat. She said, oh, you, you saved $6.66. And then her eyes got real big. <laughs> Whew. And I just started laughing. Ah, that's funny, you know. And she's like, are you serious? You want this receipt? And I'm like, yeah, I'm good. I'm good. I don't worry about the mark of the beast when I got the mark of the best. I'm good. So, <laughs> but we'll talk about that more later on. So John, he'll, he'll use objects. He'll use numbers. He'll, he'll, he'll use events. And there are some huge, vivid events that John uh, points to and describes in, in this epic battle of good versus evil. And John will use events which I, I believe had a setting in his day and time that the audience he was writing to, I believe they understood exactly what he was, was talking about because they knew the context. They were living in the context in which John was writing. Think about it this way. Uh, think about reading the newspaper and when you read the newspaper, you see the headline that says, Tigers, Mall, Indians. And when you see that headline in the newspaper of Tigers, Mall, the Indians, it's very important to know the context of which section of the paper you're reading that in. Because if you're reading in the sports section of the newspaper, the headline, Tigers, Mall, Indians, if you're a Detroit fan, you're good, you're happy. <laughs> but if you read in the world section of the newspaper... And you're thinking, we need to get some guns and help those people out in India. There's tigers roaming everywhere. You know, tigers are mauling the Indians. You see, the context makes a difference to what it means. And the same is true when we read the book of Revelation. That the context and the genre of which John is writing, that makes all the difference in the world to the interpretation. 
He goes on, he'll also use, use creatures. And, you know, unfortunately, we don't live in that context. And so sometimes it's a little difficult and have to do some study and, and try to understand what the context is in which John was writing. If you've ever seen Star Wars, consider that preparation for studying Revelation because there's some weird creatures and things like that going on in, in Star Wars. And John will use creatures to illustrate his vision. Uh, going back to the newspaper illustration, if you were to go to the opinion page and you see like a, a political cartoon, if we were to see a cartoon that showed a donkey laughing and an elephant crying, we would understand that one political party had won and another had lost. But if someone from Africa or someplace that didn't have any grasp of our American political system, they're going to see this picture of a donkey and an elephant and they're going to think Americans are weird. <laughs> what is going on here? And that's true when we look at Revelation. And we need to get into the context to, to understand what John was trying to communicate. And so that's important to remember. When we see these images, John was communicating something to his audience. So when John describes a beast coming out of the sea, the people in his audience that he was writing to, that, that would have clicked with them. They, they would have understood that. But I'm also convinced the true key to understanding Revelation it's for us to center on the understanding of who the main character is in this book. And we've got to focus on the main character. And the main character of the book of Revelation is a lion who becomes a sacrificial lamb who becomes a lion again. The main character of Revelation is Jesus Christ. The book of Revelation, it's all about Jesus. And we need to keep our eyes open on the main character. Don't lose sight of Jesus. Don't lose sight of Jesus. It, you know, it's, it's interesting when we choose to close our eyes. Maybe you've watched the Olympics some this past week, and you'll see some of the parents in the stands. And if it's a close race, it's like the parents, they don't want to look. They want to close their eyes because it's so intense. Or, or maybe in a scary movie, you know, you get to that climactic scene, and, and it's like you just want to turn away. You want to close your eyes. And friends, as we read Revelation, <laughs> no matter how intense it gets or how scary it gets, don't close your eyes. We've got to keep our eyes on Jesus. Don't lose sight of Jesus. Because John writes in Revelation chapter 1, starting in verse 9, he says, I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. And on the Lord's day, I was in the spirit and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, which said, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet and with a golden sash around his chest. And the hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand, he held the seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp, double-edged sword. His face was like the sun, shining in all its brilliance. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. And then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. 
I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead. And now look, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. Write therefore what you have seen, what is now, and what will take place later. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. And that's how chapter one ends. But John, at this point, John is the only surviving apostle left. He's the last of the original 12. And he's in a place called Patmos, which was an island prison. We would compare it to Alcatraz, uh, just to give us kind of a reference. It was a place where prisoners were exiled. And because of his stand, his faith in Jesus Christ and and teaching the word, he was sent to this prison uh, uh, on Patmos. And John, even though he's a prisoner, it's, it's a Sunday morning. It's the Lord's day. He's wanting to worship. He, he wants to be with his church family, with his brothers and sisters who are, who are going through such a difficult time. And, you know, John wants to encourage them. He wants to give them a message of hope, but he can't because he, he's isolated. He's, he's alone. And when we find ourselves feeling alone, feeling isolated, maybe we should do what John does. Because when John finds himself alone and isolated, John worships. He worships the Lord. And when we find ourselves feeling alone, maybe we should do the same thing. We should worship. As John worships, he hears a voice. And not just any voice, I mean the voice. And he turns around and he sees Jesus Christ. And for the next 21 chapters, Jesus is going to take John on a journey. And John's going to see heaven. He's going to see hell. He's going to see the future. And Jesus tells John, I want you to write down what you see. And catch the flow of this chapter 1. In Revelation 1, the first three verses, it's like an introduction. Kind of like at the beginning of the worship service when you get up here and welcome everybody to Restoration Christian Church. And, and then verses 4 through 5 is kind of the, the, the greeting of, of grace and peace. And, and it's interesting because John is taking a New Testament greeting of grace and he's mixing it with an Old Testament greeting of peace, shalom. But he's bringing the Old Testament and the New Testament together. Then in verse 6, it's a prayer, kind of like we would ask God's blessing in the beginning of our service. And then verse 7 is where the sermon starts, and here's the sermon. Verse 7 begins with the word, look. He begins with the word, look, and it literally means pay attention. Don't miss this. Keep your eyes open, because John is writing to people who have lost sight of Jesus who have closed their eyes to Jesus. Even though they were in the church, they had lost sight of Jesus. It's easy to lose sight of Jesus, isn't it? It's easy to close our eyes. I know school is starting back this week. And maybe for our students, it's easy to close our eyes to Jesus. We just want to fit in and we just want to be left alone, so to speak, and just kind of go with the flow. And it's easy to close our eyes and lose sight of Jesus, or maybe a boyfriend or girlfriend pressures us, or or it's easy to lose sight of Jesus, isn't it, students? But adults, it doesn't really change the older we get, does it? 
I mean, there's still pressure and still, you know, there's bills to pay and there's job issues and there's marriage and children and illness. And we just get so busy and we're running from here and there and our schedules are so jam-packed and it's just easy to lose sight of Jesus. And when we take our eyes off the big things, when we, when we take our focus from the main things, it's just easy to lose sight of Jesus. And that's why I think John begins this message by saying, look, pay attention, don't close your eyes, don't miss Jesus. Because when we close our eyes, we create a crisis of familiarity. We can have a crisis of familiarity when we take our focus off of Jesus. Because we get so used to thinking about other things. We get so sidetracked besides other things that, that can have importance. And, and we forget what Jesus looks like. We take our eyes. We, we close our eyes to Jesus. Now, I am what you would call a Buick. A brought up in church kid. A Buick, okay? I, I've been blessed to be raised in a church, a Christian family. Been in church my whole life. I'm a Buick. That's not a reference to size. That's just I'm a Buick. I brought up in church kid. And I've seen every picture of Jesus on any flannel graph you can throw at me. I've seen the pictures. I've been to the VBSs. I remember my grandma's house. She had this picture of Jesus walking on the water. And it was majestic. He had this beautiful robe on, this beautiful sash. His hair was blowing like Fabio in the wind. I mean, it was impressive. I've seen those pictures of Jesus. Get familiar with those pictures of Jesus. I was blessed to be raised in a a Christian home and be a part of the church all my life. And I get familiar with what Jesus, what we think Jesus looks like. Or, or maybe you didn't grow up in the church, but, but uh, maybe just because you're part of the younger generation, you've kind of got the Ricky Bobby version of Jesus. You know what I'm talking about? The Ricky, the Ricky Bobby version of Jesus? Or baby Jesus. Or as our brothers to the south call you, hey Zeus, we thank you so much for this bountiful harvest of dominoes, KFC, and... Always delicious Taco Bell. Hey, um, you know, sweetie, Jesus did grow up. You don't always have to call him baby. It's a bit odd and off-putting to pray to a baby. Well, look, I like the Christmas Jesus best, and I'm saying grace. When you say grace, you can say it to grown-up Jesus or teenage Jesus or bearded Jesus or whoever you want. I like to picture Jesus in a tuxedo T-shirt because it says, like, I want to be formal, but I'm here to party, too. Because I like to party, so I like my Jesus to party. I like to picture Jesus as a ninja fighting off evil samurai. I like to think of Jesus like with giant eagle's wings and singing lead vocals for Leonard Skinner with like an angel band. And I'm in the front row. Yes, ma'am. Thank you for all your power and your grace, dear baby God. Amen. 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 Let's dig it. Well, we get familiar with Jesus, don't we? And we like, we like the Christmas Jesus, or we like the baby Jesus, or bearded Jesus. We, we, get so, we, we make Jesus how we want him to be. And, and, you know, in the beginning, God created us in his image, and ever since, we've been returning the favor. And we've been making God how we want him to be. And we close our eyes, and we lose focus. I came across this poem, I would like to buy $3 worth of God, please. Not enough to explode my soul or disturb my sleep, but just enough to equal a cup of warm milk or a snooze in the sunshine. I want ecstasy, not transformation. I want the warmth of the womb, not a new birth. I want about a pound of the eternal in a paper sack. I'd like to buy $3 worth of God, please. 
It's like the Jason Bourne movies. And the Bourne identity, Jason Bourne, he can't remember who he is. He can't remember his identity. And so he goes on this venture trying to find out who he is, trying to remember his story, trying to figure out, you know, what is his identity? Where did he come from? And Jason Bourne, he, he lost sight of himself and he desperately wanted to, to discover himself again. And I think in the same way, the church can lose sight of Jesus Christ. We can forget who he is. We can forget his identity. And when this happens, Jesus, he becomes a mascot instead of master. When this happens, we declaw the lion. And that's when we come back to this book of Revelation. And John says, don't close your eyes. Look, pay attention to this. Have we lost sight of Jesus? Have we closed our eyes? Have we taken our focus off of him? Do we grasp how powerful he is? Do we grasp how mighty he is? How awesome he is? Because the more I study Revelation, I get nervous when I am reminded of just who he is. Because John, using the Old Testament to describe Jesus, he paints him as God. He has got a sword and his voice is like Niagara Falls and he speaks and the universe comes into existence. And Jesus, I mean, he could play kickball with our planets. And this is huge, Jesus. This is powerful, Jesus. This, we don't dare approach him casually. There's an author named Annie Dillard and, and she wrote this, this, put the whole paragraph on the screen. But I want to focus in on the men, middle where she's talking about just coming in casually to church on Sunday. And she says, it's madness to wear lady straw hats and velvet hats to church. We should all be wearing crash helmets. Because that's how awesome, that's how powerful he is. We need to be ready. When John saw Jesus, his reaction, he passed out. He fell as though dead at Jesus' feet. In church, we need to be warned that Jesus in heaven, he's not just some grandpa that winks at our sin. Oh, no, he's awesome. He's mighty. He's, he's powerful. He's someone who cannot be managed or contained. He is Lord. And he is among his churches. And he knows what's going on. He sees our, our sins. And thankfully, though, he is gracious to do something about it. But if we close our eyes, we lose sight of him. We create a crisis of familiarity. And if we close our eyes, we can also create a crisis of fear. You know, the church, they were facing persecution. The church that John wrote to, they, they were risking everything to follow Christ. They were at risk of losing it all and even their lives. And it's hard to stay focused when that happens. You want to close your eyes when it's scary. You want to close your eyes when you're in pain. And even today, we get scared. We've got a lot of fear. And this causes us to lose sight of Jesus because we want safety. We, we want to be secure. We, we don't want to have to worry about anything. You heard about the little boy that he was always worried about the basement in their house because it was dark and scary down there. <laughs> And one day his mom asked him to go downstairs and get the mop from the basement. And he didn't want to go because it was dark and scary. And so he goes over to the door of the basement and kind of looks in, shuts the door. And he said, he told his mom, I can't find it. And she said, go down there and get the mop. And she said, he said, look, I'm scared. I don't want to go down there, mama. 
And she says, you remember how in Sunday school we were taught that Jesus is always with you and Jesus will be there to watch over you? And he's like, and she said, well, he's everywhere. Jesus is down there in the basement. He'll be with you. There's no need to be afraid. And so the boy, he goes to the door, he opens up the basement door and he yells down there, hey, Jesus, if you're down there, can you hand the mop up? And we feel like that little boy a lot of times, don't we? Because we're afraid. But what are you afraid of in life? Is it rejection? Is it failure? Is it just to fit in? Is it letting go of the past or being honest with yourself? Life is hard. And it's so easy to lose sight of Jesus. It's easy to wish it would all go away. It's easy to lose sight of the one who promised to always be with us. Because sometimes it just feels so distant. And that's why John paints this huge picture of Jesus to give us hope. To remind us, to encourage us that Jesus, he is strong enough to carry you through whatever you're facing. No matter what you're going through, no one is going to mess with Jesus. And if no one's going to mess with Jesus, no one should mess with you. And Jesus is tired of people picking on his church, of people picking on his people, the ones that he loves. And Jesus, he took it on the cross for us, and he's tired of the bully picking on you. And there's coming a day when he's going to make it right. There's coming a day when he's going to knock the bully out. How do I know? I've read the back of the book. (laughs) I know how it ends. And I want you to hear, because there is a blessing that comes from reading these words. Just, just be encouraged by this. I want you to hear the blessing from this book. John writes, I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. And with justice he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe, dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. And coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. And he treads the wine presses of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has this name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. And then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. Now I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes, and there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. And then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And the Spirit and the Bride say, Come. And let the one who hears say, Come. Let the one who is thirsty, Come. And let the one who wishes to take the free gift of the water of life, Come. Church, keep your eyes open. Don't close your eyes. There is so much to see 
about Jesus. You don't want to close them. Keep your eyes open.